and uh, we're glad that you all are here uh, the Sunday after Easter. Um, and uh, how many were here last week? Sure. Man, we blew the roof off this dump, didn't we? I mean, uh, I had never seen uh, what a cool experience it was for people to be here and to celebrate uh, together. And uh, we had over 400 people uh, that were here, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. And we had those little packets uh, in which we had over 30 people kind of accept Christ for the first time. And I know that some of you did not get one because we ran out. But if you'd like to uh, have a Bible with some next steps on how to connect with God, uh, we have some back at the connections table, so you can pick those up and uh, be a part of uh, that. Uh, also, we had uh, over 25 kids uh, accept uh, Jesus as their forever friend, and so uh, we were really excited uh, about that as well. And I know some of you have been wanting the CDs that we passed out, and uh, we'll have some back at the Connections table that you can pick up. Uh, due to copyright law, we couldn't, you know, kind of mass produce them for everybody. Uh, but we'll have some over the next couple months so you can uh, check that out. Well, last week was spectacular. And uh, this week we're going to follow up on that by beginning a new series called Creed. And it's kind of what I call a school series. In other words, we're going to be getting some knowledge into our heads uh, about that. And so, are you ready? That was a mercy ready, you know, like, uh, yeah. All right. We'll try to do better, okay? Well, I would like you to turn to the person beside you as school starts today. And uh, I would like you to answer this question. It will come up on the board. Um, what did you like most about school? Okay? So turn to the person beside you. If you don't know them, what did you like most about school? Okay. You know what I liked most about school? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. School was not for me. What I was about was summer, you know, and summer's coming. And how many of you loved summer as kids growing up? Yeah, we all did. And for me, it was not about school. It was about summer and how much fun you could have in summer. And you remember those days you just go outside and you just play and 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 play and, play and then rest, you know, because Rest was just for girls, you know, but I mean, guys, uh, they just never, uh, you know, rested whatsoever. And um, I remember for me, summer was on 2302 South Geneva Avenue, and uh, we would get out together and we'd have adventure and sports and uh, all kinds of uh, fun kind of stuff. Fun stuff. I'll try to put it up here, maybe. Here, I'll just leave it right there. Get away from me! No. But I just really, really, really uh, loved summer. And I enjoyed getting on my huffy bicycle and, uh, you know, riding it around. 
and uh, taking firecrackers and throwing them at cars and people. And uh, it was all fun play. But if you were anything like me, before you could go outside to play, you had to do what? Chores, right? Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, chore rhymes with bore, right? And uh, give me some examples of the chores uh, that you had, okay? Give me some examples. What, what were some of the chores? You can shout them out. What was that? Clean your room. What? Mow the lawn. Dishes. Take out the trash. Okay? On and on and on. Well, um, any of you have to dust? I always hated dusting because uh, our house was dusty. <laughs> I mean, it'd be thick, you know, you'd like, take the whole thing off. Now, uh, I broke chores down into two categories. One was chores I hated, okay? And some of those were like clean your room, uh, make your bed, take out the trash, feed the dog, Untie your brother from the water heater. My brother really did do that to me one time. He tied me to the water heater. And then the second type of chores were those that proved that my parents hated me. And uh, these were biggies like taking out the garbage. We lived out in the country, and so you'd have all this nasty, sloppy stuff, and you had to take it out and get all over you. Wash the windows, you know. Worst one I hated most of all was take a bath. You know, those type of things. But probably the one that I hated the most, I mean the demonic chore, was pulling weeds. I hated that one. I mean, I would rather take a lawnmower and take it over my bare feet than have to pull weeds, you know? You see, my parents just had this great idea that we had to have this garden, and it was going to supply all of the needs for our family. Uh, the, and I think they enjoyed it so much because they had slave labor. <clears throat> I mean, before there was child exploitation, there was the Bunch family. And I mean, my brother, sister, myself were out there, you know, in this hot sun, you know, working, pulling weeds all the time. And every day you had to pull weeds from the strawberries and from the green beans and from the tomatoes. And you had to get down on your hands and knees and you had to get dirty and, you know, smelly and nasty. And it was always like 80 degrees at 9 in the morning and you're just dying. And when you pulled them, you had to pull roots and all. Because if you didn't get the roots, what happens? They come right back. Exactly. So often while I was pulling weeds, you know, my friends would be uh, riding by on their mopeds. Any of you people have mopeds growing up? I hated you. I hated anyone with a moped. I never had a moped. But they'd ride by on their little mopeds and they'd go, Hey, weed boy! Hey! When are you going to be able to come out and play, weed boy? And they'd just drive right by. Now, I knew there was always one quick way, though, to do this chore kind of quickly. And what I would do is I'd take my foot and I'd just start kicking at the weeds. Or I'd stomp them down into the ground. And that would work, you know, for what, a couple hours, and then what happens? They just grow right back up. I mean, by noon, you know, it's like, wow, this jungle's back. Because if you don't get the weeds at the roots, they will spring right back up again. Well, I learned from my weed-whacking days about this, and that is there is a lot of power in roots. In fact, roots are everything. 
And this whole series that we're going to be working through is looking at the roots, the power of roots of the Christian faith and how that can apply to our life today. We're beginning a brand new series called Creed. And I mean, if you think about it, uh, the roots provide nourishment for us. They provide health. They provide stability. Whether it's a weed or a tree or a person's life, roots are essential for personal growth, for spiritual growth. The Bible talks about this when it says this. Let your roots grow down into him, that is Jesus, and draw up nourishment from him so you will grow in faith strong and vigorous in the truth you were taught. Let your lives overflow with thanksgiving for all he has done. And folks, that's what I want for you. I want your faith to have some roots, to go down deep, to be connected. I want you to have strong roots. Now, the theological word, uh, the God word for this word roots is the word creed. And what creed simply means is this, a statement of belief. And that's kind of your first fill-in-the-blank if you're a fill-in-the-blank person. A statement of belief. That's what a creed is. Now, there are two truths about human beings. There may be many more, but for our purposes today, I want to look at two. And the first one is this. Everyone has beliefs. No matter who you are, where you're at, everyone has beliefs. Everyone has a creed on the way that they live their life. How you live life, how you uh, view life, the truths that you kind of focus in on to live your life by. And even if you say, I don't have a creed, I just believe in myself, well, even that itself and you saying that is a creed because you have a belief that you're saying, my thoughts, my ideas, my experiences are really what I live my life by. So in the first century, following the resurrection of Jesus, which we talked about last week, last Sunday, the early Christians developed these different thought patterns and beliefs, these creeds of what described their experiences and how they had learned and received from God, from Jesus himself. And so when people were baptized, which we'll be having a baptism class today, and if you've been thinking about that, you can go and check that out. But when they got baptized into the church, they kind of had these statements of faith of what they believed, who they were focusing in on. And this was the basis for what it meant to follow Jesus. This is my belief. This is my creed. Now, there are a couple of problems that take place with creeds and with doctrines, with beliefs. The first one with beliefs is this. Beliefs can be exclusionary. They can be exclusionary. In some churches, what happens is there is a doctrine of belief, and if you don't believe in these particular things, growing up as a kid, mine was uh, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do, and that was the one. Um, Or your hair has to be a certain length, or guys can't have facial hair, or you can't have a tattoo, or all these don'ts, basically. But What happens is, eventually, they put enough on there that you don't belong to the club. If you don't get into all of these different things, you don't become a part of our club. And so, 
There are these like exclusionary walls that are built around churches and people can't penetrate them. They can't get inside because they're not welcome. And the problem with that is that it never allows people to explore their own faith at their own pace. It doesn't allow them to discover the process of transformation for their life. And folks, the reality is the key to faith is not to be exclusionary. We're Christians now, and so we're excluding everyone else. But it's really about transformation. How are you being transformed daily to grow and live your life to look more like Christ? Now, the counterpart to that, which is also a problem, it's kind of the second problem here, and it's this. What you believe affects the depths of the relationships that you can have with someone. It affects the depth of the relationship that you can have someone. That's what your beliefs do. Now, often this happens with counseling sessions uh, that I have when people's marriages have gone south. You see, what they uh, assume is that when they first got married, that the other person held similar beliefs to what they thought. That's why we do a lot of stuff with premarital counseling. I don't just you know, meet with a couple once and then say, up, oh, you're hitched, let's go do it. But there's several sessions that we go through, and we talk about where in the places are you meeting, and are there some places in your belief system where you're just, wow, you're not even connecting whatsoever. We talk about family background and personality issues and how you deal with finances and how you deal with conflict. We talk about sexuality and what you're going to have to sacrifice to be in a marriage. I'll never forget one couple that came to me and they said, ah, I don't think we'll have to sacrifice anything. And what I wanted to say was, are you stupid or what? You know? Because... This is what I've learned. If couples don't figure out what the other person believes, the the compatibility and the long-term success of that relationship is iffy at best. Because if your belief systems are like that, you'll never connect to the thing that is the heart of who you are. For example, maybe he believes that money should just be spent anyway, anyhow that we can do it. Let's just spend our money. I mean, let's not save for anything. A little consumer debt's good. Everybody has debt. I mean, it's no big deal. And besides, things have a way of working out in the end anyway. So just don't worry about it. She, on the other hand, uh, hates the fact of not having a substantial savings account because it makes her feel emotionally secure. And her parents uh, were frugal growing up And they taught her to be that way because she remembers being in high school with a friend whose dad lost his job. And because they didn't have any savings account, uh, once that hit the place where he didn't have a job, they ended the marriage and divorce because there was nothing there to help out. To her, it's a matter of responsibility. We won't get that big screen TV until we have the money to pay for it. Now, the decision that they're going to have to make is this. Can I live with this person despite their believing money in a very different way than I do? And chances are pretty good, folks, that your thoughts are not going to change that much over time. So can I live with a person that has a different belief system than I do? Now, here's the deal. The higher the priority 
of whatever your belief system is, the higher the priority it is, the more that it affects the depth and the intimacy and relationship that you can have with someone else. Now let's take a more extreme view in marriage. Let's say that one person enters into marriage with an open marriage concept. They're cool to be a swinger. Uh, They have no problem with having multiple partners. Let's say the other one enters into the relationship and they say, you know what, this is going to be monogamous for me. We're going to be faithful. So when one partner starts having different relationships and the other one's trying to say monogamous in the midst of this, how do you think that's going to uh, feel to the person who wants to be one person only as their marriage? Well, they're going to feel abandoned. They're going to feel wounded. They're going to feel betrayed. You see, both of them had different belief systems on sexuality and marriage. The problem was it just went like that. It never connected, and so it affects the intimacy of their relationship. That's why in the New Testament, uh, it talks about do not marry another person who is not of the same belief, a follower of Christ as you. You know, the first time I ever read that, I thought, man, that's kind of weird and it's kind of judgmental. But the reality is the statement's true because if you don't share your love with Christ, no matter how good looking they are, or no matter how much money that they have, or no matter how wonderful they seem or how starry-eyed you are and brain-dead you are, don't do it. Because they'll never be able to share the deepest part of your life, of who you are. If you're not on the same page spiritually, guaranteed you will have issues that go down the road and you can talk to people about them. So the two truths about human beings is this. First, everyone has beliefs. And secondly... Those beliefs will affect your relationships. They really will. They will affect your relationships. Now, today and throughout this series, what we're going to be looking at is a famous root system in the Christian faith called the Nicene Creed. And let me give you a little historical context on this creed so that you'll know why you're bored today. Okay? Some of you will get that a little bit later. Well, here it goes. The Nicene Creed was written in response to heresy and arguments that were happening in the early church. Constantine was the emperor of Rome, and he was experiencing all this political success, and there was unity in everything in the country except one thing, and that was faith. You see, the church had kind of divided within their thought process of what the church should be, and he brought together all of these religious leaders to come together to talk about uh, what it was that brought us truly together in a place called Nicaea, which is in present-day Turkey. And all these leaders convened, and they talked about these issues. Now, forming a council was not something that was unusual in the early church. If you look in uh, the book of Acts, In chapter 15, you'll see that they had a council of Jerusalem. Now, the council of Jerusalem, oddly enough, they got together to talk about circumcision. They polled together all the religious leaders to talk about that. Now, I'm smart enough at this point to know this. Don't go there, bunch. Okay? We're not going to talk about circumcision. 
But my point is this, that there is councils, and they were not unusual. Now, the Council of Nicaea pulled together to talk about one thing, and that was, was Jesus really God? Was he God, or did God just kind of create him? Was he really God? You see, the heresies and the arguments of other people were saying that there's a difference in the nature between God and between Jesus. They're not the same. They're different. Was Jesus really God? And the reason was why this is important, and listen to this carefully, is this. If Jesus wasn't God, then he couldn't be perfect. And if he wasn't perfect, then he couldn't have paid for your sins and my sins on the cross. And if he wasn't God, then he didn't rise from the dead, which we talked about last week. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then your faith and my faith at that point is pointless. It really doesn't matter. Because if Jesus was not God, then here's the real biggie one, then he was just simply a moral teacher. Just like any good moral teacher down a long line of moral teachers. Like Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, Martin Luther King Jr., Richard Simmons. Sweating to the oldies, right? I mean, that guy's moral. There are a lot of people who are good moral teachers, but they're not God. But everything in our faith hinges on the resurrection that Jesus is God. That's why Paul, the guy who wrote over half of the New Testament and the closest follower of Jesus, said this. He said, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You see, folks, everything around the church hinges on the fact that Jesus is God. And if you can disprove that in Christianity, then it's just a hoax. There were all these hundreds of different theories that came out that said that Jesus was not 100% God or 100% uh, human. He was either one or the other. He wasn't both. There was one called the swooning theory. You should look this up sometime. Basically, it says after they put 100 pounds of uh, cloth on him in the tomb, he somehow miraculously got out of that after, you know, losing all of his blood and being beaten and uh, tortured. And then he went to uh, the tomb. He knocked down 16 different soldiers. And then he had enough strength to move a stone that 100 men could not move by themselves. And then he jumped back inside there. And uh, that was it. I mean, all of these theories that were going on, it just didn't make any sense. So at the end of the council, they created this creed, and there were 300 leaders who came together, and only two of them disagreed. And in 325 B.C., they actually called it the Nicene Creed. Now, how many of you were raised either Catholic or in a liturgical uh, church where uh, you said a creed every once in a while? How many? Okay, there's several of you there. And uh, this creed is often read on Sunday mornings, and it's often during the celebration of communion. Because as you'll see when we read it here in just a second, that the creed is so clear and so basic that it is a true summary of what Christians believe. And the whole Christian world comes right down to this. 
Now, if you are here today for the first time, or you came Easter and you was like, man, that was good last week, but ugh. I mean, why did I pick History Sunday, you know? I mean, this is weird, you know? But it would have been even weirder if I would have talked about circumcision, you know? I mean, it could have been a lot worse, you know? But the reality is, I think you chose a great time to come because when you leave from this place, you're going to have a summary of the beliefs of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And if I went to a mosque or a Jewish place, uh, you know, a synagogue, for my very first time, I'd want to know exactly what were these people believing. And in the Nicene Creed, it says this is what we believe as followers of Christ. And so let's go ahead and I'll read it for us. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth, all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through Him all things were made. For us and our salvation, He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in the glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And Catholic here just means universal. It's not talking about denominations or a particular group, but it's talking about uh, the church universal. Holy means set apart, that we're set apart for that. And apostolic means sent, that there's a mission The church is on a mission. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, there right there is an entire lifetime. You could spend the rest of your lifetime just trying to study this creed by itself and the mystery and the theology and all of the knowledge behind it. I mean, you could go to seminary for the rest of your life, to Bible school for the rest of your life, and you would never fully unpack that. But you know what? I think I can do it in six weeks. That's a joke. I'm brilliant, right? I mean, who needs seminary, right? Forget that. We're going to learn it all here. Well, actually, we're not going to look at the whole thing today, and I'm sure you're very grateful. But we want to look at just the first part of it, and I want to look at the key word of what this creed is all about. If you look at your program, what do you think the key word is? It's really big. We! You're brilliant! Throughout the creed, over and over again, it says, we believe, we believe, we believe. Now, at first glance, it might seem kind of odd, because the reality is, your faith is a personal belief, right? It's not a corporate belief, it's personal. But the early church fathers' beliefs was that their theology, all their understanding, 
And their souls were under attack. And they wanted to know that this creed was not just what they individually believed, but we, everyone, a part of the church, believed in this because they were speaking on behalf of everyone who followed Christ. So by writing we, what they were saying is we're standing together. We're linking arms. We're doing this thing together. It's like the Macarena dance, you know what I mean? You can never do that just by yourself. You've got to have a group of people and you do all this stuff and woo-woo, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's not about me, it's about we. And folks, that is big. You know how big that we is? It's billions big. Billions of people before you and billions of people right now have these statements of belief that they believe in. And they're linking arms together. Folks, this is the reason why this is such a big deal for us today. You see, your faith is not just your faith by itself, but my faith, your faith, our faith together is the we faith of what it means to be a follower of Christ. The Bible puts it like this. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And the key word in that is the word belong. We belong to each other. You belong to the person sitting beside you. And the practical uh, step, the big we that I want you to get from this, the thing that I'm challenging you to, is get connected. Get connected. I want you to get connected with other followers of Jesus. Now, I realize that that starts at different levels, and it's different for each one of us, but find a level and get connected. Now, the reality is some of you come here week after week after week, and you sit by the people next to you, and you don't even smile at them. You don't say hi. You're not even glad that they're here. And uh, I know you're, you might say, well, the jar's kind of a big family, you know, and I didn't come from a big family. Well, if you didn't come from a big family, even big families, you know, if you go to a family reunion or you go to a, a cookout or a barbecue and you sit down beside somebody, you at least say, hey, how's the weather, you know? You would talk to them. Even if it was that one weird kooky uncle, Al, you know? Doesn't everyone have that weird kooky uncle that everyone states? But everyone at least talks to him. And that's what I'm asking you to do here. When we come here, get connected. You celebrate the fact that we are a part of the we. I want to challenge you to get excited when people come. I mean, it's not an obligation or a duty, but it's a real privilege that you have people that are praying for you, encouraging you, sitting beside you. It's not this kind of obligation, you know, when Derek says, hey, why don't you greet each other? And you're like, hey, how you doing? Well, good, so. Oh, it's a privilege to be a part of the we. Now, the persons who I've found to understand this the most, and some of you might disagree with me, but the people that I've found to understand this the most are people who are in fraternities or sororities. Now, if you're in a fraternity, which I wasn't, I was never in a fraternity, never even went into a house. I was in a few sororities every once in a while. So you're getting better, okay? 
But people who've been in fraternities or sororities, they spend a whole lot of time together. I mean, for four years, they're living together. They're streaking together. No, I mean studying together, okay? And they're in a system like Sigma Chi or Alpha Omega or Gata Tapta Kega or uh, Phi Kappa Yabba Dabba Doo, you know? I mean, I don't know what any of those. It's Greek to me. It's so good to be loved, you know. But there's this brotherhood and this sisterhood that happens in these fraternities and sororities. And so you could be from Ball State, and if you're part of Alpha Kappa, if you find someone from UCLA, they know the handshakes and the secret words and all this kind of stuff. You're like, you're my brother. You're good. Good to see you. How's your toga going? You know, I mean, all that kind of stuff. And folks, the reality is the church is like a fraternity or a sorority without the streaking. Okay? Seriously, Jesus died for the church so that we could live deeply together. We could be in community together. For some of you, this means reaching out to people on Sunday and making Sunday a habit, not just this week, but each week, coming, being here, learning from God's Word, and getting connected with some people around you. For others of you, you've been here a long time, and you've been getting to know people, but now it's time to take that next step, to be a part of a small group. To say, you know what? I want to be a part of a group that I can become intimate with. I think of a guy in our small group who I invited a couple years ago. He said, no way! I'm not going to do that. I don't want other people to really personally know me at that level. And I twisted his arm, his wife did, and eventually he came. And he started to love it and really enjoy it. And he started getting connected and building relationships. And this past winter, when his wife became very, very ill, and she had to take off of work, and she had short-term disability and that was it, that group got together and they said, we're going to put some money together, and we helped with finances for them. You see, folks, that doesn't happen anywhere else except in the we. I think of other people that I know who put on people's uh, roof of their house, or they've worked on basements, or they put in new bathrooms. And all this happened because people were connected together, and they were doing the we together. Folks, when I hear stories like that, that's why I love the church. I love Jesus, but you can't have Jesus without the church because he died for the church. And the we is so powerful that you want to be connected. Getting connected, doing life together, because that's what we do. Plus, this summer, you know, if you get some Reds tickets, and you're thinking, you know... He is a pretty good guy. He didn't talk about circumcision that day. Um, you'll just give them to me and my family. Or there's a guy in our church uh, who's got a Corvette. And I go, hey, man, give me the keys. We're brothers, you know? But that's the way it's supposed to be. We're sharing. We're giving with one another. Now, I'd like to close by just practically looking real quickly at the first section of the creed. 
because it does have practical relevance for our time. And if for some reason that word belief in your system is like, you know, that word gets thrown out all the time, just kind of uh, change that word with the word trust. We trust in, we trust in whoever it is. We trust in God. We trust in Jesus. Trusting the truth. So let's look at this first section of the creed. It says this, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and of earth, of all that is seen and is unseen. The first thing that jumps out of that is this statement. There is one God. There's one God. You see, the Jewish tradition and then what Christians picked up on was a monotheistic God, which is just a big word for one. One God. We're not a pluralistic God. There isn't God the Father and then God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Three gods. No. One God. We'll talk about that next week. There aren't multiple gods. We're not pluralistic. We're one God. Now, at the practical place then, we have to begin to start asking ourselves, do I trust that one God? Or do I have a lot of little gods in my life? Is comfort a God for me? When I'm down, when I'm depressed, when I'm discouraged, I don't turn to my God, I turn to the television. Or I turn to entertainment. Is that my little God? Or do I trust money more than I trust in God? I mean, if God came to me and said, Chris, I want you to sell everything that you have. Give all the money to the poor and then come and follow me. How would I respond? Am I my own little God? Folks, the reality is, there's only one God. The question is, do I trust Him? Here's the second thing in that first little line. God is our Father. God is our Father. That means that God is not some uh, philosophical thought that's way out here somewhere that we can't touch. He's so far removed that we don't understand. But God is personal. He's close. He's connected. That's why He gave us a word like Father, so that we would know we're related to Him. In fact, the Bible tells us that He's a Father who's coming towards you all the time. He comes looking for you. When you're hiding away from Him, He comes to look because He loves you that much. Folks, God is all about relationships. He's not about religion. He's not about a list of rules or regulations or rituals. He's about relationships. He wants you to say, you're my father. He wants to be known as your father. Someone who's known. And that's why it's so important, that's why it's so important in the creed. You know, growing up, my sister Lisa was eight years older than I am. Still is. And... Uh, in her teenage years, she uh, kind of shut down communication with my dad. And if you have teenagers, you kind of know what that's like. You were like that, okay? All of her answers were just short, one-word things. I'll never forget as an 8, 9, and 10-year-old just watching it going, man, she stopped talking, you know, like didn't talk anymore. She'd walk into the house and... Uh, my dad, you know, would have us sit down maybe at the supper table and we'd go around, how's your day? And, you know, I'm real talkative, so I'm like, ah, la, 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 you know. And my brother might say a couple things. And so, Lisa, uh, 
How was school today? Fine. What did you do in school today, Lise? Nothing. You got any plans for this weekend? No. That's it. She would just walk into the house most of the time, open up the door, go to her room, open up that door, close it, and that was it. Boom. And it was driving my dad nuts. We had our Easter celebration yesterday, and I was talking to him about this. And for months and months and months, just these one short word answers. And he's thinking, I'm her father. She's got to talk to me. She may not realize it now, but she needs me. She may think I'm dumb now, but she really needs me. And there was this sense that there was a great need that only a father could meet. Because his number one job that he saw was to father her so that he could gear her towards her heavenly father so that one day when he wasn't there, she would still have a father who would care for her, take care of her, love her. Folks, your father in heaven already knows every single thing you're thinking about. But if you don't talk to him, the signals, it just ends. And and we need to be able to say, I need your fathering. I can't figure this out on my own. I don't really, you know, understand it all. I mean, what kind of relationship is that to have a teenager for their whole life where they're just like, I don't want you around. I'm closing the door. I'm going to sit on my bed. I'll figure it out on my own. Folks, your heavenly father knows every detail about you, and he wants to hear about it. He wants you to talk to him. So you have to ask yourself from this creed then, do you really have a father-child relationship with God? Am I letting him into my emotional world when I'm happy, when I'm sad, when I'm angry, when I'm ticked, when I'm depressed? Am I letting him in? Do I trust him to be my father? Now, I realize that in a crowd this size that there are some of you who have had horrible relationships with your fathers. They abused you, they hurt you, whatever. I just want you to know your heavenly father will never, ever do that. He just reaches out in love and then he asks you, will you trust me? Another word that's in the creed is this line that says almighty, which means omnipotent or all-powerful. So I have to ask myself, do I really believe that? I mean, what is my real level of trust in God's power? In a world that seems so out of control, do I really believe that He is a God of power? You know, throughout the Gospels, uh, which are Jesus' teachings, basically He would go from town to town or to disciples, and He's like, how do you not have faith to believe in the power of God? And it amazed Him. I mean, the reality is, folks, and you see them all the time, You can be the most religious person in the world. Go to church every day, read your Bible, do whatever. And your life, though, is powerless because you have no power from God. You haven't tapped into his power. You just believe whatever your parents believed or your husband believes or your spouse believes. But you haven't believed it. Do I really trust him in situations to help me? Do I believe he can do things in my life that are beyond my ability, beyond my control. And lastly, the line that states, God is the creator of everything. God is the creator of everything. 
You ever think about the vastness of the universe? I take my daughter out sometimes at night, and we just look at the stars. And usually she's always, where's the moon? Where's the moon? You know, because that's the one she can see. But now she's starting to see stars, and she'll ask questions like, well, Daddy, what, what's out there? The reality is, I don't know. You know, there are galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies that have hundreds of solar systems in each one of them. It's gone so far, we don't even know everything anymore, like we ever did. So do I really believe that God created everything in the universe, both the seen and the unseen? Because if God did, then what it means is that there is a universe, and it has a purpose, and it's going somewhere. I mean, it's not random chance that it takes place. Because if it's just random chance, why are you here? Who cares about morality? Let's just, you know, who cares about being kind to each other? Forget it, if there isn't a God. You see, God created the universe outside himself. That's why when you see religions that say, oh, God's a tree, or God's a butterfly, or God's a blade of grass, or God's a cow, or God's a cockroach, no. He's none of those things. He created those things outside himself. And this is the most powerful thing. He created you. He has a purpose and plan for each one of your lives. This week, he has things that if you don't get them done, no one else is going to do it because he wants to use you. So the question becomes, do I believe that? Do I really believe that he has a purpose for my life? Do I trust him? Can I give up control and say, God, I trust in you? So for the next five weeks, we'll go through the rest of this. And it all comes down to asking the question, God, do I really trust in you and what you did? Let's stand for closing prayer. God, we, uh, we invite you to come. Come by the power of your Holy Spirit into the lives of people who are here today. And throughout this series, God, would you just help us to know you more that we'd understand really what we believe, what we trust in. And God, I pray that you would expose any belief gaps that we have. And God, whether we're just learning to trust you or we've been trusting you for a long period of time, help us to grow into a deeper relationship with you and with each other. Help us to get connected so that we're not on an island somewhere, but that we're growing together. So come, God, and open up our minds and our hands and our hearts to all that you want to share with us in this simple creed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you'd like prayer for anything, come on up and uh, trust God this week. Have a great week. Know you're loving.